want you to imagine a call 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, maybe 3 o'clock in the morning. Maybe it's a text message, maybe it's an email, but it's got to be somebody close to you. And they call you and say, can we talk? I don't know how to go forward. What is God doing in the middle of this? I'm tired of the failure. I'm tired of the guilt. I can't go on. What are you going to say? That 2 o'clock call says it feels like this is the end. It's the end of a relationship. It's the end of a marriage. It's the end of a job. It's, this is the, the fourth job that's ended this way. How am I going to go on? What am I going to do? I want you to imagine. What is it you're going to say? Maybe it's not an imaginary thing. Maybe you're the one making that phone call. And you're like, how do I go forward from this point? I feel like I've been stuck for five months, six months, a year, two years. This has been 20 years of saying, God, what are you doing? How am I going to go forward? How do I get out of this? Right now we're in a series called Failure is Not Final. where We're, we're talking about this idea that what is God like at the lowest point? And how can we know that God's actually not done with us when it sure feels like everything's over with? Last week we talked about Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. We call it the fall. We call it the curse. And we found that even at the worst moment in history, we find God doesn't write off Eve. Today, we're going to go to another low point in the Bible. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Go ahead and turn there with me if you've got your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat row in front of you. We're going to have some of the verses on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 is another low point in the Bible because when we walk through history, starting from Adam and Eve, then we get to the story of Noah, God starting over with another family, but then we end up seeing this story go from broad to narrow. God narrows to Abraham, then from Abraham to Isaac, and then to Jacob. The people of Jacob's family are saved out of Egypt through Moses. God forms a nation. That nation wanders from God and comes back and wanders from God and comes back. Then there, there are the kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Then the kingdom splits in half. Israel to the north never has a good king and gets wiped from the face of the earth never to be seen again. Then there, we're left with Judah. Judah sometimes has good kings, sometimes has bad kings, often has bad kings. And then, right before Judah goes into exile, this low moment that feels like this is the end of the story, we get Jeremiah chapter 30. The year is about 586, 587 before Christ. We know stories of Daniel. Daniel comes after this moment. This is the moment that looks like the lights are going out. Israel's gone. Judah has the, the, the nation of Babylon staring at their gates hungering to wipe them out. Jeremiah's been saying his whole life, his whole ministry, that this day is coming and God is going to judge Judah. And so right before the lights go out, we find Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. 
Let's pray. God, as we open your word, just another low moment that seems like everything's lost. Help us to find and hear your call not to despair. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in this passage, we're going to find three reasons not to despair. Lights are about to go out. The people are going to be taken from the land. The best of the young men are going, going to go and serve in another kingdom. And the people are going to have to live lives and build homes and raise families and have jobs far from the land of promise. And it's going to feel like this is the very end. And God is going to tell the people right, right before that happens, don't despair. Do not despair. I'm going to show you three reasons not to despair. Verses 4 through, 4 through 11 say, do not despair because God sees and saves. It doesn't feel like it, but do not despair because God sees and saves. Verse 4 says, These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says, Cries of fear are heard, terror and not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, and he will be, but he will be saved out of it. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Verses 4-11 through 11 say, Do not despair, because even in the midst of pain and anguish, God sees and saves. He starts with this picture. Can a man bear children? Of course not. Then why do even the, the strongest men act in pain and anguish? Why is life so hard? In a church like ours where the average age is probably something like 12 years old, we know a lot about what it's like for women to give birth and the anguish of that. And in the picture of this moment, it, this, the picture of Judah's history is the pain and anguish of childbirth being spread out across everybody in the land. It's this picture that in this day, in this day, Judah is going to be punished. It's going to seem like the end of the world, like the pain is unbearable. Then verse 7, God says, how awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob. In that moment, we can feel, in the middle of failure, we can feel like this is the end. There will never be worse pain. We will never be saved out of this place. But God finishes that verse with, but He will be saved out of it. He will be saved out of it. This is going to be a day which, of all days, you should despair but God calls His people not to despair because God sees and saves. Verse 10 and 11, pick that same idea up. It says, do not be dismayed, Israel. Do not despair. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Verse 11, I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Can you imagine being the people of Judah in that moment? Can you imagine... Your entire country is uprooted. All of the promises of God feel like they are at their end. Your teenage sons, the very best of the land, are taken away to go serve other gods, to serve other kings, and you don't think you will ever see them again. And this, this, 
this note, this book, this letter, this postcard from Jeremiah, from God through Jeremiah, goes with you into that land. You're going to say, we've lost everything. It's our fault. This is totally over. But in that moment, God sends you a letter and says, hold on to this. I will surely save you. I am with you and I will save you. This is a letter to the people to say, do not despair. It's not the end because God sees and saves. That is God's specialty. When we look in the New Testament, we find that when God Himself comes to His people, He takes that as His name. We, we call Him Jesus. The Greek word is Jesus. The, the Hebrew word is Yeshua. But it's this name, God saves When He comes to His people, He doesn't come with a name that means something. He just says, my name is salvation, and so I am coming to you because that is my specialty. And so no matter what you are facing, no matter the despair, no matter those things that make you feel like I should give up, I should move on with my life, God does not see, God does not care. This passage says, do not despair because God sees and saves. It's His specialty. If you're talking with a friend that says, how do I go on? How do I get up from here? This is the lowest point. What do I do? They need to know that God sees and saves. That's His specialty. In the lowest moments of history, He takes the name God saves. So where in your life do you need to hear this? Where do you need to hear that God sees you? He's not ignoring what's going on. He's, He's not paying attention to something else, he actually sees where you're at, what you're going through, and says, I am with you and I will save you. The second reason not to despair in this passage, verses 12-17, through say, do not despair because God defends those He disciplines. Verses 12-17 through say, God defends those He disciplines, so don't despair at failure, at problems, at discipline. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says, your wound is incurable, your injury is beyond healing, there is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you, all your allies have forgotten you, they care nothing for you, I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel, because your guilt is so great and your sins so many, why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord, because you are called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares. Verses 12 through 17 say, Your sins, your your guilt is great, and your sins are many. God's not minimizing the fact that they're going into exile for their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. That God is teaching them that they cannot have a righteousness of their own. And He's not minimizing that. Like, look at your lives. They are great guilt and there are many sins and so you will be disciplined. Verse 16 starts with my favorite word in the Bible. But. In the Bible, there's so many times that it says, like, look, look, is, look, this is the status. Your sins are great and your guilt is great. You can't do anything about this. Verse 16, but. All who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. 
Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. You see, God right here is identifying to the people of Israel, yes, things are going to be bad. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be kind to you. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to be very, very cruel. They are disciplining you and my people for your sins, but I will defend you. Doesn't feel like it. With kids, we know what it's like to need to discipline. But if anybody else tries to discipline my kids, I will defend them. This passage, God is saying, just because I'm disciplining you doesn't mean I'm writing you off forever. I will be your defender. I love the psalm that says, God is a warrior. This passage has this idea in the moments before they leave into exile. God says, I'll defend you. When I was a kid, I was not very fast, and I wasn't very tall, and I wasn't very athletic, so excellence at sports was kind of out of reach for me. But I, and I remember one day I was playing backyard football with all the other boys in the neighborhood, and first time I can remember, I scored a touchdown. And in the moments after that, another kid came up and sucker punched me in the stomach. And so I'm sucking for air, I'm trying to... <gasps> Like, this was, the, this was the good moment where I finally scored. I've finally done something good, and somebody sucker punched me in the stomach. And everybody else playing just kind of stood there and watched uncomfortably. Nobody stood up and said, hey, wait, you can't do that. He's on our team. That's not fair. Don't do this. I realized in that moment, nobody's going to come and defend me. Later on as a kid, there would be other guys that would kind of identify that same thing, that, that playground bully who would pick and pick and pick and sucker punch and bounce balls off your head when you're not looking. And nobody stands up and says, hey, you can't do that. You can't do that. And so I learned nobody's ever going to defend you. So I began to take on this idea, I have to defend myself. And this passage says, no, God defends those he disciplines. It doesn't feel like it. Everybody else is standing around sucker punching Judah, saying, we're going to write you off. We don't want anything to do with you. And God says, I will defend you. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to stop paying attention. I will surround you. I will defend you. And so this passage tells his people, you feel down and out on the floor. You feel like everybody else is taking shots at you. This passage says, no, God defends those he disciplines. He defends those he loves. doesn't feel like it right now, but look for his, him to come to your defense. So where are you at right now that you need to hear? Here I am on the floor, not knowing what's coming next, not knowing who else is going to take a shot at me. God is your defender. Do not despair. Do not despair. He promises that he sees what's happening. Maybe you take shots at home. God defends those he loves. God defends those He disciplines. Maybe it's shots that you take at work. Maybe it's shots that you take in your extended family. No, God is your defender. Even when the lights are about to go out, know that God is watching and promises to defend. Maybe you need to hear the part of that that says God does discipline. We have to take sin seriously. But His discipline comes along with His defense. That His discipline comes to us with great love because He wants to restore us. And that leads us to the third reason not to despair. Do not despair because God restores His people. Verses 18-24 through say, 
This is what the Lord says, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in the days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In the days to come, you will understand this. Verses 18 through 24 say, don't despair because God restores his people. He begins listing all of the ways that God is going to restore Judah and Israel. He begins listing its worship. I'm going to restore you to worship. The kind of worship that I delight in and that will be songs of thanksgiving and joy in your, in your country. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. Not only is He going to restore worship and He's going to restore joy, He's going to restore the city so that it's established. He's going to restore families so that they are established and grow up. Nobody is going to oppress them. Nobody's going to come from the outside beating up and sucker punching my people anymore. But what I love is what we find in verse 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. Let's not miss the context of this in the audience. Like it's already bad. It's already really, really bad. They've got no food. They've got no water. They're, they're in... Got, their cities are under siege. They're already in despair. They're trying to figure out, well, maybe if we call for the king of Egypt to help us, the pharaoh of Egypt, maybe he will rescue us. They're already staring down the barrel of the greatest power in the world. And God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He's giving this, this promise. At this last moment when they're down and on the mat and don't know how to go on, and he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. In the book of Leviticus, it's this, the book of Leviticus is like law after law. Some of them make sense to us. Some of them don't make sense to us. But at, at the very heart of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, is this verse that echoes the same idea that we're seeing right here. Verse 26 in Leviticus chapter 20 says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Your translation might say, to be my very own possession. That throughout Israel's history, God has been obsessed with the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and then ultimately the people of the world to, to be his own possession. And so even in this moment where the lights are about to go out, the punches are raining down, God it's calling to the people of Israel and says, you will be my people and I will be my, your God. Just like I promised when, you, when I saved you out of Egypt, just like I've promised along the way, you're going to be mine. God has set His heart on His people. And so do not despair. God promised to restore His people. Even failures and even rebels, even at all of these low moments in the Bible, God has His eyes fixed on His people. Saying, I want you to be mine. Even failures and rebels like me, like you. 
You see, we read this. And we go, how can this be true? I'm not supposed to despair because God's going to defend me. I'm not supposed to despair because God sees and saves. I'm not supposed to despair because God has set his heart on me and promises to restore. But here I am just caught in despair. Here I am caught in guilt and shame and deserving none of this. How can this be mine? How can I know that I'm on the outside, inside, not the outsider that God promises in this passage that he's going to crush? He says he's going to wipe out those that plunder you. Those that spoil you, I will despoil. How can we know that we are counted with the people of God and that these promises can be ours? Verse 9 says, Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Verse 21 says, Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. This passage has this promise that a Messiah is going to come one day near to God and leading the people to be near God. And so it's when we get to the New Testament that we understand what it means for this passage to be fulfilled. You see, if we read the passage, you can go, oh, well, if I stop sinning, if, if I stop failing, if I stop... We've misread and misunderstood the passage. This passage calls us to look for the leader that God would one day raise up and see that He's going to lead us to be near. He's going to be the one that allows those that are on the outside to become insiders, members of the family, God's very own possession. If you're here today and... You go, how do I know that for sure? I'm kind of new here. How can I know for sure that God sees and saves me? How can I know for sure that God will defend me and not point His finger and crush me? How can I know for sure that God will restore the brokenness in my life? The story of the Bible is that God made the world and He made it good and He looked at Adam and Eve and He said they are very good. You will live as little kings under me and I will be the great king over you. And together we will fill the earth with babies and the rule of God, reflecting God's glory to the world and the people's worship back to God. And Adam and Eve said, no, we want our own kingdoms and we will not worship you. And you and I and every person in the human race has said, no, we will be our own kings. God will be a rival king to us, not the king over us. This part of the Bible is showing us that God will crush His enemies. That God takes sin extremely seriously and that those that will not turn to become His, to, become, to come to Him, will be crushed just like He promises to crush Judah's enemies. And so, the Bible tells us that Jesus came and lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die so that instead of God looking, seeing, and saving, and defending Him, instead pours out the judgment that He should pour out on us, on Him. So now, God can see and save us. God can now defend us because He has disciplined His Son and crushed His Son. God can restore us because we see in the resurrection that God has raised Jesus back to life. And so, the call to all of us is will we repent of sin and trust in Christ and say, I'm not going to despair because God's not done with me. I'm not going to despair because God sees and saves. I won't despair because God promises to defend. I heard a story this week. A writer was talking about uh, the 
early church, specifically the Eastern Orthodox Church in the early church history, would often decorate their churches with ostrich eggs. Ostriches evidently used to be spread out all over Africa and Asia, but because of hunting, they're now restricted to a fairly small slice of the world. But specifically in North Africa and where the early churches were located, they would decorate their churches with ostrich eggs. And the reason that they would decorate their churches with ostrich eggs is because even though ostriches have really, really small brains, they have really, really good eyesight. And so what, what they end up doing, they have these huge eggs that they are concerned for, and if they hang out near them, then predators will know where they're at, and so they will come and they will grab and eat those ostrich eggs. So the ostriches will wander far from their eggs, but they will keep one eye always on that egg. Always on that spot where they, bu- they buried that egg because they, that's their life. That's, that's their baby. That's what's coming next. And so they, will, they, would, they can wander very, very far to feed and to protect themselves, but they always keep themselves within range and within sight of, that, of one of their eggs. You're like, Joe, why are you telling me the story of these ostriches? This passage is calling the people of Israel and us to keep our eyes on the fact that God is not done with us. It is so easy when going through despair and going through failure and going through sin to focus on, look at what's happening. God must have forgotten me. But this passage, given to the people of Israel as the last document before they go off into exile, is God saying, keep your eyes right here. I'm not done with you. I will save you. I will defend you. I will restore you. And so the call to us is to keep our eyes on that. The the call to us is when we're talking to a friend or a child or a parent that's caught in despair is to say, fix your eyes on the fact that God is not done with you. Look at this promise and don't stop looking at it. Imagine what kind of homes can happen when we begin to live that way with one eye on the promise of God that no matter what's happening here, no matter the sucker punches that I take, God is defending. God is watching. God is caring for me. Imagine what happens on your block and your team at work, in your club, or in your wing at school when you are living there with one eye on the promise of God and one eye on exile, difficulty, failure. We know we don't despair in the face of those things because we have one eye on the promise of God. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you're not done with us. And that as you give us your spirit and you work in us, you've promised that you will come to us. You will restore, you will save, you will defend. Help us to be those same kind of people in the world, in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.